I want to direct your thoughts this morning to Romans chapter 12. There are two or three verses in the first ten verses of this chapter that I especially want us to think about this morning. But I want to read the first ten verses with you. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith, or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy, Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another. If we did nothing but obey the commands of those first ten verses, we would solve most of the problems in our churches. Let's pray together. Father, would you grant us grace as we contemplate what it means to live together as an association of churches. Grace to enable us to live in obedience to these commands that you have given to us, to prefer one another above ourselves, to let our minds and our actions be transformed, to be renewed by your Spirit. Father, we thank you that you have given us, of your Holy Spirit, a spirit that binds us together in unity. May we seek to maintain that unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It goes without saying that the past few years, past three years especially, have been extremely difficult years for the Association of Reformed Baptist Churches of America and for the local associations of confessional Baptists as well. And in my opinion, much of what has happened to cause damage to our association need never have happened had matters been addressed in a biblical and an ethical manner. And yet it is out of such difficulties that God often teaches us lessons, lessons that we need to learn and lessons that many times we did not even know we needed to learn. But God, in his good and gracious providence, forces us many times into situations to call up our attention 
to those lessons that we do need to learn. From my vantage point of sitting as a member of the Administrative Council of ARPCA, I've had the dubious privilege of observing some of the difficulties firsthand and of formulating in my mind the root causes of some of those difficulties through which we have come and what needs to be done to correct those problems. Let me say that I have no desire to go back and revisit many of the events that have taken place. They were painful then for me personally, and frankly, some of them are still painful today. I go back and look at some of the issues only for the purpose of helping us to learn the lessons that we need to learn. In my mind, there are two major problems that lie at the root of the difficulties that we've endured for the last three years or so. The first difficulty is that there are many within the Reformed Baptist movement as a whole that simply do not understand many of the doctrines of our confession of faith. Now, I do not make that assertion in a derogatory fashion. It is simply a fact. It was true of me when I first became a member of our association. Actually, if you go back even further, when RBMS was first formed. From our inception as a church, we have had the 1689 London Confession of Faith as the official doctrinal standard of our church. But if you were to have quizzed me then, in 1983, as to my understanding of the Confession of Faith and compare it to my understanding of that same confession today, you would see a vast difference in my understanding now compared to then. If I were to go back then, I wouldn't even have called myself a Reformed Baptist based upon what I knew. Now, I'm going to be commenting on various aspects of this problem throughout my three addresses to you, but it's not the problem upon which I've been asked to focus in our three sessions together. It overlaps the second problem, but I will only be commenting on it when it directly pertains to the second issue. Now, this problem of lack of understanding is the one that is perhaps most easily rectified. We have available to us various resources, which, if we take advantage of those resources, help us, I think, to solve the problem of the lack of understanding of our confession. In particular, I would recommend to pastors, elders, and deacons the resources available to us through the Institute of Reformed Baptist Studies. I would have to say personally that nothing has increased my own personal understanding of the confession of faith like the symbolics course taught by Dr. Renahan. And not only does that course give you a deeper understanding of the confession, it gives you the historical background out of which our confession has come. It will help you to understand what the framers of the confession meant when they used the terms they did, terms such as without passions in chapter 1 or that antichrist of chapter 26. I would recommend as well Dr. Sam Waldron's commentary on the 1689 Confession of Faith, a great aid to understanding as well um, the, the confession. There are also online courses available through Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. Thankfully, we're seeing more and more books that are coming onto the scene written from a Reformed Baptist perspective that enable us to understand ever more completely 
the teachings of our confession of faith. I would dare say that there are many churches, when they come into the association of churches, are Calvinistic Baptist churches, but are not necessarily Reformed in their theology. Now, we have several such churches in our part of the country. By virtue of being Calvinistic in their soteriology, they are outcast from the prevailing Arminian milieu of evangelical churches around them, and consequently, they are looking for fellowship with other like-minded Calvinistic Baptist churches. And hearing then of associations of churches that are Calvinistic in their soteriology, they long to join together with us so that they can enjoy the fellowship of other soteriological Calvinists. And I want to make clear, however, that while all who hold to true Reformed theology are Calvinist, not all who are Calvinist are Reformed. Many want to use the term reformed because it has become somewhat hip. You've all heard of the young, restless, and reformed. I would contend that they are young and restless, but many of them are not reformed. And in fact, I would go even further and say that the reason they are restless is because they are not reformed. (laughs) They are, in fact, in a halfway house between dispensational evangelicalism and true reformed theology, and halfway houses are never comfortable. If they would adopt reformed theology as that system of theology that is most true to Holy Scripture, they would still be young, but they would cease to be restless, and they would truly become reformed. Now, those who are reformed, however, are confessional, and hold to the confession of faith as that to which they subscribe as it was originally written. And I want to stress that last phrase. The confession of faith is no more a living document than the constitution of our nation is a living document, and to try to make it so will have the same deleterious effects as we have seen in the culture of our nation. If we say that we hold to a confession of faith, then we must hold to it as the framers of that confession meant for it to be understood. Otherwise, we are not holding to that confession of faith. We are holding to a confession of faith of our own making and our own understanding. Once you begin to hold to a confession as you understand it, all boundaries are removed. And you might as well hold to no confession at all. I might say that in my opinion, to claim to hold to a particular confession of faith, when in reality you are holding to your own understanding of that confession, even though it differs from the understanding of the framers, is the height of arrogance and is in fact dishonest. It is to say that you understand that particular theological issue better than the cloud of witnesses who witnessed it and witnessed to the truth of that confession when it was written. It is to say that you understand the Bible better than those giants of the faith that have gone before us. And it does no good to appeal to the Bible as against the creeds and the confessions. 
I would agree with A.A. Hodge in his statement. The real question is not as often pretended between the word of God and the creed of men, but between the tried and proven faith of the collective body of God's people and the private judgment and the unassisted wisdom of the repudiator of creeds. Now, all of this, however, is a bit extraneous to the issue that I want to discuss with you primarily today, though it leads us into the subject that I want to address with you today. The Apostle Paul in Romans 12, writing to the church in Rome, says, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. I find it very interesting, after the exhortation found in verses 1 and 2, the general exhortation to present our bodies a living sacrifice, and to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that the very first exhortation given by the apostle following that general exhortation of verses 1 and 2 is the exhortation to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Could it be that this is perhaps the biggest issue we face in our progress personally in sanctification? And could it be that this is perhaps the biggest issue we face in our sanctification progress as a collective body of churches? Could it be that this is the issue that has caused difficulty for our national and local associations over these past years and indeed is the primary cause of difficulties within any particular local church. And let me say that as I walk through some of what I consider to be the principles that we need to be following as an association, they really are not that different from the principles that we follow within our local churches. If some of the things that have happened within our national association happened within our local churches, we would be so upset, and yet it's allowed to take place on the national level. Why? I think the answer to these questions is quite obvious. We are all naturally self-righteous. That's been brought out before us already this morning in the devotion. We are all naturally thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. In pop Christian psychology, you often hear that you must learn to love yourself before you can love others. That is diametrically opposite of biblical teaching. Scripture tells us that we love ourselves far too much. J.C. Ryle says that this is, quote, the family disease of all who are children of Adam. From the highest to the lowest, we all think more highly of ourselves than we ought to do, end quote. Now, in the modern parlance of our culture, We think everything is about us. Instead of being transformed by the renewing of our minds, we have been conformed to a me-centered world. When we are in a conflict situation where we disagree with others, we obviously think we are right in the way that we view a particular issue. If we didn't think we were right, we would accept the other person's viewpoint and there would be no conflict. The problem is not present because we think that we are correct. 
The problem is present because we tend to adopt our position as having some bearing upon who we are personally. And then if a vote is taken and it does not go our way, we become very distraught, sometimes even to the point of breaking fellowship with a brother. And when we do that, when we make such a rash move, we simply demonstrate that we thought it was all about me. Now, when I have to write a difficult letter to someone in our congregation, I usually submit that letter to my fellow elders before I send it. I know that I do not always see matters as clearly as I ought to see it. I know that I have emotions at the moment, that I might make a statement that would only inflame a situation rather than promoting peace. And if my elders come back to me and tell me that I need to change this wording or that wording in that statement, I need to listen to them. For me to press forward ignoring what others have said would be to say that I think this is about me. It's my personal issue here that I need to press forward. And it isn't. There are far greater purposes at stake than my own personal sense of who I am. The cure for this disease is, this disease of thinking too highly of ourselves, is to know ourselves rightly. John Calvin begins his Institutes of the Christian Religion with two axioms. Number one, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Second, without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. Now, with regard to this second axiom, Calvin writes, it is certain that no man ever achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. For we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. This pride is innate in all of us, unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. Moreover, we are not thus convinced if we look merely to ourselves and not also to the Lord, who is the sole standard by which this judgment must be measured. End quote. And then concerning the first axiom, that axiom that says without knowledge of self there is no knowledge of God, Calvin writes, our very poverty better discloses the infinitude of benefits reposing in God. The miserable ruin into which the rebellion of the first man cast us especially compels us to look upward. Thus, not only will we in fasting and hungering seek thence what we lack, but in being aroused by fear, we shall learn humility. For as a veritable world of miseries is to be found in mankind, and we are thereby despoiled of divine raiment, our shameful nakedness exposes a teeming horde of infamies. Nobody can say it like Calvin. Each of us must then be so stung by the consciousness of his own unhappiness as to attain at least some knowledge of God. Thus, from the feeling of our own ignorance, vanity, poverty, infirmity, and what is more, depravity and corruption, we recognize that the true light of wisdom, sound virtue, full abundance of every good, and purity of righteousness rest in the Lord alone. Now, as Reformed Baptists, we hold confessionally to the doctrine 
of the autonomy or the self-government of the local church. Chapter 26.7 makes clear that to each of these churches he has given all power and authority, which in any way needful for their carrying on of that order of worship and discipline, which he has instituted for them to observe. However, in that same chapter, paragraph 14 makes clear that those same churches, quote, ought to hold communion together among themselves for their peace, increase of love, and edification. Now, I'm going to be speaking more to this issue in our next message, but the term communion was understood by the early framers of the confession to mean being a part of an association of churches. So the question that I want us to consider this morning is how can we maintain the authority of each local church and yet at the same time live in communion with one another as an association of local churches holding to a common confession of faith. And I believe that Paul's exhortation not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, combined with the exhortation of Romans 12.10, in honor giving preference to one another, is a key to understanding how these two principles of local church authority and holding communion together are maintained in a proper balance. While we understand that no association holds authority over the worship and discipline of a local church, that same local church voluntarily lays aside certain rights for the good of the association of churches as a whole. Now we, of course, are following in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ, who laid aside their right to enjoy the glory he had with the Father before the world began, to come to earth as a man and to pay the penalty for our sins. Paul writes in that famous text of Philippians 2, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, it is precisely because we have the tendency to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think that I believe we need to be in an association of churches. Being a part of an association of churches provides what the confession calls an increase of love and edification. And part of the increase of love and edification is learning to submit to one another in love and learning to humble ourselves before the views of the association as a whole. At the root of this edification is learning to submit to authority. And while no association can dictate to any particular church how it is to conduct its worship and discipline, it can make the determination as to whether a church can be in communion with the other churches of that association. Yesterday afternoon, Doug Vandermulen used the example of John Wooden as the coach of the UCLA basketball team. And... Uh, Bill Walton, when he came in and getting his hair cut, I think is a great example of what we are talking about here this morning. Coach Wooden could not force Walton to get his hair cut. 
But Walt knew that if he wanted to play on the basketball team of John Wooden, he would get his hair cut. I remember the words, too, of um, Phil Jackson to his Chicago Bulls team. There is no I in team. And, of course, Michael Jordan came back and said, yes, but there is an I in win. (laughs) Now, of course, if our only objective is to win our point of view, yeah, there's an I there. But if our objective is the glory of God in his churches, then we take the I out. No association has the right to tell any church what they must believe. But the association does have the right to determine what churches can become a part of and remain part of that association. Two examples from the history of the English Baptist illustrate these two points, and I draw these two examples from Dr. Renahan's book, Edification and Beauty, which, in my opinion, should be required reading for the elders of the churches of ARBCA. Dr. Renahan notes that in 1691, a division took place within the Horsley Down Church, pastored by Benjamin Keach, over the issue of hymn singing. Now, it was not simply a matter of hymns versus psalms, but rather whether or not there should be any kind of singing in public worship at all. And the church split, and the group that opposed hymn singing in public worship formed a new church which came to be known as the Mays Pond Church. Now, in 1694, the Mays Pond Church debated the issue of whether to send messengers to the General Assembly of the particular Baptist churches to be held in London in May of 1694. The General Assembly of 1691 had determined to allow hymn-singing churches to maintain their communion in the General Assembly. Consequently, the Mays Pond Church understood that in order to be a part of the General Assembly, they would have to submit to the ruling of the 1691 General Assembly and voluntarily lay aside their disagreement with the ruling out of submission and respect to the General Assembly. And though they as a church could continue to practice their view against hymn singing, they could not make it an issue with the Association of Churches. They would have to, in effect, show preference to the other churches above themselves. Now, the Mays Pond Church chose not to become part of the association because they would not compromise that principle, believing that allowing for any kind of singing in public worship was a wicked intrusion into God's worship and a sign of apostasy. Now, while I disagree with their theological position, I agree with their position with regard to refusing to join the association if they were not willing to submit themselves to the ruling of the prior General Assembly. They understood that principle that to be a member of an association meant voluntarily laying aside certain rights. And they considered this issue to be of such importance that they would not become a member of the association knowing that they would have to compromise on that issue to a degree that was unacceptable apparently to them. Now the second example took place in 1706 when the Bognio Cripplegate Church refused to participate in the attempted renewal 
of the London Association of the London Association of Churches. The Bognio Cripplegate Church gave as their reason for not participating in the association the presence at the 1706 General Assembly of a Seventh-day Baptist church and a well-known Arminian church that the 1689 Assembly had refused to admit. Now, what I want to note here is that the 1689 Assembly had refused to admit into the association these two churches that did not subscribe the Confession of Faith. They did not attempt to dictate to either of those two churches what they had to believe, They did make clear, however, that without full subscription to the Confession of Faith, they could not be a part of that General Assembly of Churches. Now, the church book of the Bognio Cripplegate Church cites the fear that admission of these two churches would undermine the influence of the Confession in the Association of Churches. And for them, a weakness in the theological standard that had been held among the particular Baptists prevented them from formal association with the revived London Association. Now, as you can see, there is an integrity that is necessary for an an association to exist that cuts both ways. Those who join an association must understand that when they do so, they are committing themselves to submit their personal views on certain topics to the overall view of the association. They are saying that they do not consider their views to be so important as to override the views of the association. And that is what it means to prefer others above yourself. On the other hand, the association must have the integrity to uphold the standards of the association so that those who do act in submission are not betrayed into acting in a way that violates the standards to which each individual church agreed when it joined the association. Now, as an association grows in size, it must of necessity appoint committees to carry out certain functions of the association. Consequently, it's necessary in order to keep an association from becoming bogged down in having to deal with too many issues at the General Assembly level for these committees to function. So, for example, we have a membership committee that must interview churches applying for membership in the association. They must do all the work that is necessary in screening applicants so that only those applicants that understand the doctrinal position of the association and are willing to submit to those standards are then brought before the General Assembly of Churches for vote. Now, it's the responsibility of the churches to read the material set before them by the membership committee so that they can then cast an informed vote. Now, should a church be approved by the membership committee and voted into the association, what does one do if he, as a church messenger, does not think that that church should have been voted into the membership. He has one of two choices. He either must submit to the wisdom of the General Assembly, or he must quietly, stress upon the word quietly, resign his membership in the association without causing any kind of unrest within the association. Now, this, of course, assumes prior to the General Assembly that he's made his views known 
to the membership committee. Now, in the first example, uh, the first instance, we have an example of one not thinking more highly of himself than he ought to think by submitting to the wisdom of the assembly as a whole. In the second instance, we have an example of one striving to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And I would argue that the statement of the confession, 2613, should be applied within the association as a whole as well as within the individual local churches. You wait upon Christ in the further proceedings of the church. As I said before, the principles for living within a local church body do not differ significantly from membership living within the membership of, a local, of a, an association of churches. One of the other committees that we have appointed as a general assembly is the missions committee. This committee is of utmost importance in that it must interview the candidates for the mission field to ensure that he fully subscribes to the confession of faith to which we adhere, but it must also interview the sending church to, under, to ensure that it understands its role and responsibilities as a sending church. And this is a critical function in that it ensures as best we can ensure that the churches established by that church planter are fully confessional churches. Now suppose a church sets before the missions committee a man whom they have determined is qualified to be a missionary, but the membership committee reaches a different conclusion and rejects the applicant for missionary service. What should the local church do in that situation? Well, first, the church setting forth the candidate must realize that it has full authority to send out a missionary whether that candidate is recognized as an association candidate or not. Secondly, however, the church must recognize that if it wishes its candidate to go out under the banner of the association, it must submit to the wisdom of the larger body, i.e. the RBMS committee. In my opinion, it would be very foolish for a church to send out a man to the mission field when others who have an arguably more objective view of the man have refused to do so. To refuse to consider the objections of the missions committee is, in my view, to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Many years ago, within our association, back I think it was before we were even an association, we were still just RBMS, a young man was set before the RBMS committee for examination as a missionary candidate. The church that had set the young man forward was very excited about the possibility of sending of sending this young man to the mission field. The RBMS committee, however, found in both this young man's doctrinal position as well as in his personality some very troubling traits that to them was enough to cause them to turn him down as an RBMS missionary. Now the church could still have sent him out as a missionary, but he would not have had the commendation of the association, nor would he have been able to have been serviced by the RBMS office. The church, however, became quite upset, and rather than consider what the RBMS committee had to say to them, resigned their membership from RBMS. Now, they had every right to do so, but I believe that their reason for doing so lacked integrity. 
They did not understand the principle of associationalism. They did not understand that they needed to prefer others above themselves in terms of their own church within the association. And some years later, the wisdom of the RBMS committee was vindicated in the life and the ministry of this young man as he created a doctrinal disturbance in a church and was never sent to the mission field by that church. Now, because an association does have committees, men from various churches will be approved to sit on those committees. And because we are but men, there will be differences of opinions on those committees. And within ARBCA, we, though we have not adopted Robert's Rules of Order as an official guide for parliamentary procedure, recognizing that Robert's Rules are not inspired, and from time to time we need to deviate from them, they are used as a general guide to parliamentary procedure within the committees in the General Assembly. Now, regardless, there are certain protocols that govern the functioning of committees. And one of those protocols is that motions are carried by majority vote. Now, that's a no-brainer. We all understand that. But what does one do when he votes with the minority and is unsuccessful in carrying his particular position? Well, once again, the biblical principle of preferring others before oneself is paramount here. When in that position, one must support the decision of the majority. Even if he cannot vocally support the the decision of the majority, he must do nothing to undermine the decision of the majority, recognizing that God works through the structures of authority that are established in the organization. So once again, he must wait upon Christ in the further proceedings of the church. Now, if he cannot support the decision of the majority, or at the very least, refuse to do or say anything that would undermine his major- the majority for his own conscience sake, then he must quietly step down from his position on that particular committee so that he does not cause unnecessary disruption to that committee and to the association. Now, had those procedures of protocol been followed in the functioning of the Administrative Council of ARBCA over the past three years, many of the problems that were experienced that culminated in public rebukes would have been avoided. Now, I used the phrase for conscience sake just a moment ago. What does that mean? Well, I would argue that it has reference to conscience before God. Would I, if I continue to support a particular proposal or motion, be in violation of the clear word of God? Now, I make this point because I think it is far too easy to use a phrase like that as a cover for thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. When really we are only upset because our view did not carry the day or because we think that our view is correct and everyone else is wrong. Brothers, let's not enlist God as cover for our me-centered agendas. Some time ago, I gave this lecture for one of our local associations, and I was told, and I didn't get any details as to who it was or anything, so 
if I, if, it, if you know who I'm talking about, I don't know who I'm talking about. <laughs> but I gave this, uh, I was told of a church in which a vote was taken concerning a venture that was going to cost a lot of money. And one of the men in the church who I gather was quite wealthy vocally objected to the venture and urged a vote against the venture. However, the church voted to proceed with the venture. And the next day, that man wrote the largest check to the church that he had ever written. He was demonstrating a willingness to submit his views to the views of the majority within the congregation. Apparently, he did not think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Now, brothers, we teach our people from Romans 13 the principles of submission to governing authorities. Perhaps most important of all, that all authority is ordained by God. And that he who resists the authority of God resists God himself. Now, unfortunately, we typically think of those authorities as those of whom we have no choice. And since we have a choice in terms of whether or not to belong to an association, we tend to not view that choice in terms of authority structure. But we need to remember that when we voluntarily become a member of an association, that we have voluntarily stated that we will submit to the governing authorities of that association. And the ultimate governing authority of this association is the majority of the churches. It was stressed yesterday, we are not a top-down organization, we are a bottom-up organization. And it is through submission to authority that God often teaches us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. It is through voluntarily, voluntary submission to authority that we learn to prefer others above ourselves. More than any other lesson, I believe we need to learn the lesson of humility that comes through submission to God's authority. This afternoon, we are going to have the opportunity to vote on two different issues. One is the vote on the establishment of a standalone Reformed Baptist seminary. Now, as chairman of the IRBS Board of Trustees, I am committed to seeing a seminary established that will ground our future pastors in the, in the 1689 London Confession of Faith that is taught by thoroughly Reformed Baptist faculty members. However, I also recognize that the will of the majority of the churches must determine whether such a seminary will come into being at this present time. Consequently, if that vote this afternoon is a no vote, that I will be deeply disappointed, but I am not going anywhere. You cannot get rid of me that easily. <laughs> the association is not about me. The association is about seeing the work of God through Reformed Baptist churches go forward. And I will work side by side with you, even if you cast your vote opposite me, so that we may see the kingdom of God move forward through the work of Reformed Baptist churches throughout the world in whatever way God wants to see fit to make it happen. And I trust that if you're on the opposite side of the vote, 
if for one reason or another you are not convinced that this is the right time for such a venture, that if the majority of churches say yes, that you will do the same, recognizing that this movement of God is bigger than any one of us. And I trust that each of us then will learn the lesson of submitting to the authority of God in and through this association of churches. Brothers, any time that we are part of a communion, God uses that communion as part of the sanctifying process in our lives. I would have to say that there has been no greater impetus to sanctification in my own life personally than in that communion that we call marriage. If there is one place where we have to learn to prefer others above ourselves and not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, it is in the arena of marriage. The same is true of church membership. Now, one of the reasons that we need to be members of a church is that we need to learn to submit to one another in love. In Romans 12.10, Paul writes to the church in Rome concerning their interaction with one another, saying, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. And I would argue the same is true for us as leaders of the churches and for the churches we need lead. We need to learn what it is to give preference to others, to humble ourselves in realizing that we may not see the complete picture, that we need others within that communion of churches to help us see more clearly. So let me close our time this morning with the exhortation of the Apostle Paul to the Romans in chapter 12, verse 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. May God grant us grace to heed that vital exhortation. Let's pray together. Father, how good you have been to us to bring us together as an association of churches. Not only, Father, for the benefits of fellowship that we enjoy, but you tell us that iron sharpens iron. Father, we recognize the need that we have to be humbled before our brothers. The need that we have to recognize that we do not always see as clearly as we ought to see and that you use our brothers in this association to shape our thinking, to help us to see more clearly, and most of all to point out to us that innate arrogance, that innate pride so keeps us from being what we should be. So, Father, we ask you to help us not be wise in our own opinion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.